Hello, this is UCL Uncovering Politics, and this week we ask, can struggling democracies learn anything useful from well-performing dictatorships? Hello, my name is Alan Rennick, and welcome to UCL Uncovering Politics, the podcast of the School of Public Policy and Department of Political Science at University College London. This week, we have another of our occasional special guest episodes with someone from outside UCL who has direct experience at the sharp end of politics. That person is Charles Dunst, a former foreign correspondent who has reported from many countries around the world, who's now Deputy Director of Research and Analytics at the Asia Group, which is a business advisory firm based in Washington, D.C. And he's also an adjunct fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, an independent and bipartisan D.C.-based think tank. Charles has just published a new book, Defeating the Dictators, How Democracy Can Prevail in the Age of the Strongman, in which he argues that democracies that are struggling with low public trust and poor performance might have a thing or two to learn about effective governance from the world's more successful autocracies, most notably Singapore, but also others. So, Charles, welcome to UCL Uncovering Politics. I'm really looking forward to exploring this book. And before we get into the book, I guess it would be interesting for me and for our listeners to find out a little bit more about you. So what is your background? What has led you to to want to write this book? Sure, and th- thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. I mean, my, my background is maybe a little odd for a policy person, kind of author type. I mean, I, I was a journalist. I mean, that was really my background straight out of undergraduate, uh, straight out of my undergraduate university. I was a journalist based in Southeast Asia, writing mostly on Cambodia, Vietnam, and Myanmar for the New York Times and the Atlantic. And I was there for a little bit over a year-ish and basically was in this moment of figuring out, well, do I want to be a journalist or do I want to work on foreign policy issues? And it became kind of apparent to me that in an early stage in my career, I couldn't do both that I couldn't say, well, I want to be a foreign correspondent for some American or British newspaper, because those jobs often tend to be internal promotions, where if you're the Los Angeles Times' Southeast Asia correspondent, you you pay your dues for five to 10 years working in Los Angeles or working in Washington, covering local or domestic politics. And I realized, well, I care much more about these international issues than I necessarily do about journalism or being a journalistic practitioner which basically is how I ended up in London, where I worked at LSE Ideas, the London School of Economics as foreign policy think tank, and did my master's at the LSE simultaneously while still doing some journalism on the side. And this was 2019, 2020, basically, and I tell everyone, I, I advise all my kind of American uh, folks who come for mentorship career advice, I said, go to the UK to do a master's. It's uh, much cheaper and usually half the time. And I had a really positive experience in London, obviously. And basically this book came about because of my connection with LSE Ideas, where a book agent had reached out to LSE Ideas wanting to do a book with some of their senior leadership. I think it was something maybe on British foreign policy, I can't, can't exactly remember, but that didn't pan out. And what ended up happening was they passed the agent off to me and said, well, go talk to Charles. Charles is a journalist. Uh, he's written a bunch of stuff on Southeast Asia. Maybe there's a book there. Maybe there's some idea there. And this was March 14th, 2020. So I think we got coffee once before the world shut down. I was in London for a bit, then I was back in New York. But anyway, this agent and I went back and forth, back and forth. I put together a, a proposal on the Vietnam War, 
looking at how the Vietnam War, in my argument, broke U.S. foreign policy and we continue repeating the same errors. And all these publishers said, no, nah, we, we, we don't really want this at the moment. It's not it's not really a particularly sexy topic. It's a little historical. And I, you know, it's historical. It's not so interesting. And instead, what happened was Hodder and Stoughton approached my agent, Jack. And Jack had in a previous life been an editor of Penguin. So he understood both sides of this equation of being an editor, but also being an agent. And essentially, Hodder and Stoughton approached him and said, well, we want to do a book on autocracy or on the democracy autocracy thing, but with no, they didn't really have much of an idea of what that was going to be. And we went back and, but they said to Jack, do you know someone who could do it fast and for not a lot of money? And Jack goes, yep, I got just the guy. So we went back and forth trying to shape it and kind of pull together into what it became. And I think it became what it is because of my experiences traveling and working in autocracies like Vietnam or in autocracies like Singapore, the UAE, that in the grand scheme of things are somewhat, not somewhat, are definitely unusual autocracies, particularly Singapore. And thinking about, well, there's all this democratic dysfunction. Uh, what is the challenge today? What is the challenge of the Singapores, of the Vietnams, of the UAEs? But I really think the overall mechanism or the overall argument of this book or the goal was to give solutions because a lot of the democracy books are saying this is the problem. You know, we we can't govern, we can't deliver. More and more people want autocracy, but we, they don't have solutions. Or maybe it's eight chapters of problems, one chapter of solutions. And I wanted to kind of flip that structure on its head and actually say, well, let me lay out the problem very clearly in the first chapter or for the introduction, and then everything else will be solutions. And certainly people won't agree with all of them, but I wanted to at least give an aspirational roadmap from which policymakers, writers, journalists, and whatnot could maybe pick and choose a, a few hopefully good ideas. So we uh, shall get on to those solutions in just a moment, but we should, I guess, start off a little bit by talking about the problem. And how would you characterize the problem of democracy? Uh, and would it be right to say that you see it largely as a challenge of poor governance, that democracies are failing to govern effectively, and that leads on to low levels of public trust, high levels of kind of disillusionment. So, but the essence that you see is is poor governance, essentially. Honestly, yes. I mean, that is my read. That is my read. It is essentially poor governance. And I think many of this can be traced back to the end of the Cold War, where this, well, there was this notion of, well, of course, I mean, the end of history thesis and all of that, this notion that, well, our great autocratic competitor is gone and our great ideological competitor is gone. So if democracy is all that exists, or democracy is the, the, the ultimate system, we don't really shouldn't have to fight so much to make it work. I think there was this sense that democracy would just work intrinsically rather than thinking, well, we actually need to stay focused on improvements. You need to stay vigilant about declining democracy or this notion of inequality, economic inequality, really undermining people's faith in the government. So I do think it's poor governance. I mean, if you can think about, well, why was the rise of Trump possible in the United States? I mean, the answer is clearly, I mean, I think so. there are certainly ethnic nationalist concerns that played a role. But I'm, I'm a believer that many, most of the Trump voters are not voting for him on immigration, I don't think. I think many people are voting for him on issues related to economics, even if his solutions are obviously not realistic in terms of, well, we'll bring mining back to West Virginia. It's not, not realistic, but I think there is this frustration with globalization and capitalism that people seem to think go hand in hand but democracy if that makes sense right i think there's this notion of since the 1990s democracy and globalization went hand in hand and people felt that well this isn't working for me because even if the world got richer even if the united states and china got richer by trading with one another 
well, I sitting in West Virginia lost my job, or I in Ohio feel that my community has been disrupted by the loss of manufacturing jobs uh, and the kind of inability of the government to step in and, and fix the, fix many of these issues. And I really do think it is a poor governance problem. And that is part of the reason why, I mean, trust in government levels are quite low in countries as varied as South Korea, Japan, the United States, United Kingdom, and we all have very different challenges. I mean, if you want to make the case in the United States and the United Kingdom that it's about immigration or it's about ethnic issues, I guess you could make the argument, but that's a harder sell in Japan and South Korea, which are homogenous societies. I mean, like the frustration in South Korea or the frustrations in Japan, it certainly that frustration looks very different than American or British frustration, but it is rooted in the same notion of, well, the government's not working. The government's sclerotic. My, the economic outlook for me and my children is worse. And I think that actually is the crux of it, really. When you talk to, the polls show that people are far less optimistic about their children's economic futures than they were 20, 30 years ago. And that's a massive problem, particularly for a country like the United States that is you know, the richest, richest country in the history of the world. There's no justification for that. Uh, and, I, and I think it's not hard for me to understand why if you feel so pessimistic about the future, why you might consider new ideas in a new system and that new, new idea, new system being some type of illiberal Victor Orban type leader who might not believe in democracy, but does believe in some type of national uh, national development or something like that. And how do you come to the thought that in seeking a solution to these ills of democracy, autocracies might be a good place to look because i mean on the whole democracies are richer higher well-being greater freedom better governance we would often think um so what why why is it useful to look at autocracies for potential solutions well i agree with you for sure that democracies are richer and better governed absolutely i think they're it's interesting to look at some of these autocratic exceptions though and the autocratic exception to me really is singapore because you can talk about the Gulf states, and I think the Gulf states, you know, they get some credit, and they should get some credit for actually effectively managing their natural resources, obviously, in a way that many countries in Africa, Latin America have struggled to do. It, it is no small thing to avoid the resource, the resource curse. But Singapore is the exception, because Singapore's natural resource are, are its people, or natural resources is its people. Uh, Singapore has no natural resources. It has no oil. It has nothing like that that could make the country rich or make the country successful. And the reason Singapore is what it is today is because of really smart policymaking by Lee Kuan Yew, this notion of, well, let's build infrastructure to attract manufacturers or to attract outside capital. Let's maintain macroeconomic stability. Let's really spend a lot of money on healthcare, a lot of money on human capital development, on education, on all these things that, that turn Singapore into a really effective country, despite not being a democracy at all. And the reason I spend so much time in Singapore is precisely that, uh, is that because it is the exception. And I think it is ironic to me that you hear many autocrats around the world say, well, I want to be like Lee Kuan Yew. I want to build my country into a Singapore. But clearly the problem there is Singapore design and Lee Kuan Yew designed the Singaporean system from scratch and built a system that is explicitly designed to not to kind of not have corruption and graft within it to be fairly meritocratic. Whereas, of course, if you are sitting in Beijing or you're sitting in Moscow and you're saying, well, how about I adopt all the Singaporean policies? They're, they're incompatible with your system because that system is rooted in graft. It's rooted in corruption. It's rooted in political patronage and all that. And so the broad answer to your question is certainly there are some small small efforts like meritocratic civil service that Singapore does that democracies can learn from. But it is my argument that democracies can implement 
these goals or implement these ideals much better than any autocracy could because our systems are designed to counter corruption. Our systems are designed to be accountable. We are designed to have effective feedback loops, even if we're not delivering right now. I think the line I used in the book is, uh, autocracies, autocracies problem, our problems are political and autocracies problems are existential. And I think that is true with, again, the possible exception of Singapore. Uh, but if you're thinking about how, how would China reform its governance to reduce graft, I mean, it's, it's almost impossible to think you could fully remove corruption from the Chinese system or the Vietnamese system, and even to some extent, the, the Emirati system. Certainly, I do not think, I think 95, 98% of, of autocracies are offer no lessons for, for democracies, but there are some things that Singapore has done well. There are some things that the UAE has done well. Uh, there are some things that, some, at least the infrastructure spending is something that China has focused on, that, that focus is positive. But the argument being, of course, don't implement these things and lose your liberal character as a democracy. It's no, of course, it's implement, make your system more meritocratic. Maybe you can learn from Singapore a little bit, but maintain your liberal character and do these things better than autocracies ever could. And are you saying that uh, there are things that Singapore has been able to do well because it's not a democracy? Hmm. Uh, or are you just saying that maybe we're a bit too kind of blinkered in where we look for inspiration and how to do better and we, we fail to look at sometimes useful lessons that can be learned from uh, dictatorships, from autocracies, as well as from democratic states? I mean, thinking about Singapore specifically, having a meritocratic civil service, I think, is not something that only an autocracy can do. Certainly, I mean, South Korea's civil service is much, or government staffing is much more meritocratic than that of the United States. There, there's nothing inimical to me about doing that in a democracy. Uh, I, honestly, some of the examples of things that autocracies have done that democracies would struggle to do is more so like China, thinking about the vast amount of money that gets thrown at infrastructure projects, whereas, of course, the United States, the United Kingdom has to be approved by different parts of the government. We're thinking in the United States, of course, you can't just roll out a huge infrastructure spending that's not going to get congressional buy-in. And the irony is that actually, of course, serves democracies better, I think, in the long term, even if we may appear sclerotic at times or appear slow, having those congressional checks or those parliamentary checks or whatever you want to call it does prevent us, I think, at times from spending money and from wasting money, from basically saying, well, some leader in power wants to divert a huge amount of money to a very specific road to nowhere, so bridge to nowhere. Usually democracies can check against that, or at least in their ideal functioning, democracies can check against that. So I think many of the things that I think we could do better, I mean, meritocracy, building trust in government, these are not things that autocracies have done because they are autocracies. Like there are things that some of these few autocracies have done because they've either been blessed with reasonably focused leaders, thinking about a Lee Kuan Yew or some folks within the, within the Vietnamese or the UAE, the Emirati system, not because they're autocracies. Yes. Well, let's get into some of the particular areas of potentially better governance that you explore in the book. And actually, you've been talking there already um, quite a bit about uh, the possibilities for long term thinking and the importance of long term thinking and investment in infrastructure, investment in human capital and uh, all that kind of thing. And I guess there is a familiar sort of argument that says that democracies are uniquely bad at long term thinking because they're sort of locked into the the electoral cycle that focuses the minds of politicians on short term thinking. 
whereas autocracies, uh, stable autocracies, can perhaps think a bit further to the long term. So what what do you see there as the lessons that that democracies can learn? And I guess also, how, concretely, how do democracies do better? You know, are there are there specific things that we learn there other than just it's important to think about the long term? Sure. I mean, I think some of the things that autocracies do well here, or at least a small select group of autocracies, is I like the idea that China has these five-year plans, even if these five-year plans are can often be met with derision because they're not realistic. Because, of course, in an autocracy, they're not effective feedback mechanisms, and you're trying to put things on paper to satisfy the leader at the top rather than being honest. The idea of actually having goals in the next five years, I think, is very positive. And many Western countries have similar plans, but they're only they're usually defense. They're defense focused, they're national security focused. But wouldn't it be quite nice if the United Kingdom had a five or 10 year healthcare plan? What's the NHS gonna look like in five to 10 years or sitting in the United States? And I think we're seeing this a little bit more now of, well, what's our 10 year semiconductor plan or our 10 year electric vehicle plan or electric, I mean, green energy plan. Uh, All these things that are really vital to the functioning of democracies moving forward, but maybe are not as headline grabbing as defense or maybe not, for whatever reason, institutionalized as much. So I do like the idea of actually perhaps having some requirement that every administration in the United States or every government that comes into power in the United Kingdom or South Korea or whatever is forced within two years or within a year to put on paper some five-year plans or 10-year plans, whatever year you want to put it, for what will the state of healthcare be? What will the state of our infrastructure be? And you're seeing it now, I think, a tiny bit on issues like rare earths, on issues like electric vehicles, precisely because of the, the China challenge and the notion that, well, we need to reduce our reliance on China for these things has prompted some long-term thinking. It's my hope, though, that that might prompt some long-term thinking on more directly domestic-focused issues, because as much as citizens are normal people are engaged in the notion of, well, U.S.-China competition or China's relationship with Europe, people are not necessarily thinking about rare earth on a day-to-day basis, whereas they are thinking on a day-to-day basis of, is the NHS working? Uh, What are the gas or fuel prices at the moment? And having long-term plans on those issues, I think, would be really critical. Uh, And arguably, I do think the one key way to do it would be to actually require these administrations to lay them out. And I think what's clear, though, is democracies can think in the long term. I mean, the Marshall Plan is the most obvious example where Marshall Plan was highly unpopular in the United States. Uh, the progressives thought it was, the left thought it was too much spending. The right thought it was ba- essentially warmongering that the that other powers in in Europe would be crit- or Europe and and Asia would be would be mad about it. And you know the government persisted and said no, this is a long term investment, even if it's a little unpopular. No, this is a long term investment in peace and security in Europe, and clearly it worked. And I think there's nothing inimical about long-term thinking to democracy. It's more so just about who are our politicians, what are they focused on, and how are their voters pushing them? And clearly, I would argue that the, our focus on the long-term has declined. I think part of that is social media. Part of that is just the, the way our news cycles operate. And ha- so as a result, thinking about that, looking at that system, perhaps some actual required checks or required institutional mechanisms to require folks to actually put on paper some of these plans, I think would be a very strong first step. Of course, that means that you need to get politicians to introduce the requirement in the first case, the first place. Um, um, So in some way, you need to kind of change the fundamental incentive structures, I guess, that politicians are facing. I mean, are there are there 
kind of democratic reforms or, or changes to how we approach politics that would be necessary in order to get there? Or do you think a bit of exhortation from people like you and good books like this one might 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 get us there? I'm optimistic that it's the latter, not the former. I mean, I think in the book, I didn't, I mean, again, this is also because this was not a book just for UK audiences or just for US audiences, and it's already 350 pages, so I didn't lay out any specific, well, here's the US electoral reform, or here's the UK electoral reform. I more so thought about, honestly, the, the, the latter, of thinking about, well, how can we basically rely on our politicians or push our politicians to actually think on these issues? And frankly, if they aren't, Will the new generation of people step up and actually run for these offices? And you're already beginning to see that, I think, in the United States and to some extent the United Kingdom. But there is a younger generation of policymakers. And by younger, I'm not talking 20s, 30s. I mean, I really, some, things, some folks, even in their, their 40s, compared to obviously you know, much older, much older leaders, much older senators and congresspeople in the United States, are much more focused on these things. And you're thinking about who is driving some of the CHIPS investment. Uh, who's driving some of the electrical vehicle subsidies? It's mostly some of the younger folks. Or who's driving investment in cybersecurity? Who's driving regulation of AI? All of these things that are not issued at the moment are being driven by younger politicians in their 40s, 30s, maybe 50s. And that, to me, is clearly a step in the right direction. It's certainly not enough. But maybe I'm an optimist for believing that kind of exhortation will, will get us there, uh, perhaps sooner rather than later. Okay, let's look at some of the other areas in the book. So we've talked about long-term thinking and so on. I was fascinated that you talk also in the book about lessons that democracies might learn in relation to accountability and public trust, because these are kinds of things that conventionally we imagine democracies are particularly good at. They're good at holding those in power to account, whereas we imagine that there's a lack of accountability mechanisms in autocracies. And similarly, we would tend to imagine that public trust, there are, there are at least mechanisms for ensuring that if the public don't trust those in power, they can remove them and hopefully get in power people whom they trust more. Um, but you suggested that actually, in some ways, it can be the other way around, that in some ways, um, accountability and trust can be better in the well-functioning autocratic systems. I think it's really interesting and arguably the thing that surprised me the most in the book is thinking that the Vietnams of the really Vietnam, uh, Singapore, to some extent the UAE, have extraordinarily high levels of public trust in the government. And I think it made clear to me that this is very much about performance legitimacy, that it is not necessarily about well, is this a democratic government that I can maybe vote out? This is about, well, is my life better than it was 20, 15 years ago? And for many, I mean, certainly if you're in Vietnam, the answer is yes. If you're in the UAE, the answer is yes. If you're in Singapore, the answer is probably yes. Uh, and this is not to say that, of course, I mean, democracies are super, when they function appropriately, democracies do hold people more accountable and there should be more trust in government because you can vote people out. Uh, theoretically, everyone has has equality under the law. And what I found most interesting about the Singapore kind of UAE examples, and these are, you know, the highly functioning autocracies that are, of course, an, an exception. Uh, there are public shows of accountability, and even in a country like Vietnam, where Vietnam, by all metrics, is more corrupt 
than most of these advanced democracies. It is less accountable, but because that's the reality and because so many citizens are corruption weary, that they're frustrated that they have to pay the bribe to the policeman on the street or something, the government makes a big show of cracking down on corruption to say, well, we, are, we do care. We care about this issue and we're pushing against it. And it does win the government a fair bit of support because people actually feel like the government is trying. Uh, Singapore, I mean, Singapore is actually pretty uncorrupt by, by all metrics. It is fairly accountable. Uh, the UAE is kind of somewhere somewhere in between where it's generally actually not particularly corrupt at at least level below the, maybe the, the ruling family. So I, I think it surprised me that there was this much accountability and there was this much public trust in, in autocracies. But what it shows to me is that autocracy, democracies are maybe just not living up to our values, honestly, as much as we should be. And some of the book was uh, was overtaken by events in the sense that I think I wrote it when I said, well, no one has brought charges against former President Trump, but I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not going to sit here and tell you which, you know, is he guilty, is he innocent, that's above my, that's above my pay grade. But clearly no one should be above the law and that he should have his day in court if there is evidence to justify it. And I think that we've, the fact that we've seen that is a positive demonstration of accountability, because polls actually show the majority of Americans do think he should have a day in court, even if there's the 25-30% of his you know, base support that think he can do no wrong. The, the majority of Americans actually like the idea of everyone having equality under the law and everyone having their, their, day, in, their day in court. So it is unusual to think that autocracies could be outperforming us on this. And of course, 98% of them are not. But the few that are, pose a real challenge because I think people sitting in democracies sometimes feel as if our systems are running amok, whereas they feel like Singapore is very clean or the UAE is very clean and they move to counter corruption and they hold their officials accountable. They fire them from government, whereas people can kind of continuously get things wrong or continuously be corrupt in the US and the UK, et cetera, and just kind of get away with it. Uh, so at some, to some extent, when it comes to the citizenry, perception is reality. Even if the data shows that you know the United States is less corrupt than Singapore, which actually the data does not show, but if the data was to say that you know that Singapore is less corrupt than the United Kingdom, I think if you asked many Brits who'd been to both countries and have lived in both countries, I think their immediate reaction would be, of course, Singapore is less less corrupt because they crack down so harshly on on corruption and all that. So I think it is for democracies at the moment about perception, about countering the perception within our own societies that we are not holding power for people accountable because it does weaken trust in government, I think, very obviously. And trust clearly is the bedrock of democracy. I think there's sometimes a tendency in democracies, certainly in the UK, to think that because there's electoral accountability, you don't need other forms of accountability as well. And indeed, you sometimes hear politicians responding to suggestions that that politicians such as Boris Johnson, for example, should be held to account through regulatory mechanisms, they respond by saying, well, um, ultimately, he is accountable to the voters. And that is the form of accountability that we need. Um, but actually, that isn't sufficient accountability, just having a vote every few years isn't, isn't in, enough to, you know, vo vo voters have so many other issues, they might be wanting to vote on when it comes to an election time. So you do need additional mechanisms of accountability. And perhaps in democracies, we just kind of forget that sometimes. No, I think that's absolutely right. I, I think the accountability of the ballot box is important and should not be forgotten about. And you know, I'm curious what the, the UK elections look like in 16 months for that reason. But it's clearly not enough. I mean, the notion that 
I think it's one of the senators from from Alabama has basically violated one of the the regulations for how sitting U.S. Congress people or U.S. senators can trade stocks. He's violated it over a hundred times, and has you know paid a small fine, and that's kind of the end of it. And that's clearly not reasonable to me because if you're an or, no, normal person, you know I'm a normal person. I work at a business advisory firm. If I was to turn around and you know buy the stock of one of our clients based on inside information. I wouldn't just get away with it with a small fine because I'm a normal person and not a senator. And the fact that you can draw that line between the kind of the normal people and those with power is really damaging to a system that is based on equality under the law. So yes, the electoral accountability helps and it can help to ensure good governance or it can at least instill some, some fear in politicians that they can't just do whatever they want because they have voters that hold them to hold them to account. But that can't be the only thing. You can't. It can't be once you're in power, you're only accountable to voters. You are also still accountable under rule under the law. And I suppose a skeptical listener might be thinking that okay, so trust in government is higher in some autocracies, but isn't that just because the government controls the media and the information that's available, and therefore people aren't seeing? Um, the bad things that are happening, and th- therefore, actually, you know, we we should be very wary about learning any lessons. Though, I think that is true to an extent. Let's put it this way: Vietnam in twenty twenty one posted ninety three percent trust in government. I'm willing to say maybe twenty five thirty percent of that is people saying that well they know what the right thing to say is to satisfy the government. They know that it's just easier to say, yeah, of course I trust the government rather than fight against it. But even if you subtract 30, 40%, you're still at support in the 50s, low 60s, which is higher than almost every democracy at this point, where US trust in government's around 28%. Uh, I believe Japan and South Korea are in the mid 30s. It kind of varies across Europe, but Italy was around 40, the UK is around 38, 39, and that has surely gone down over the last year. So even if we're factoring in the kind of self-censorship or the way the media media ecosystem is limited and shapes people's opinions, even if we're factoring that in for, I don't know, 40% of their support, that support is still higher than in democracies. And I think sometimes it's a little bit easy for us to just write off the trust in government of these autocracies saying, oh, you know, the, the media environment is just shaped by the ruling party. And I think that would be unwise to just kind of say that and move on because it would allow us to escape and fail to grapple with what I think is actually a fairly troubling reality. And it would allow us to kind of say, well, that's not real. Let's just move on rather than deal with what is hard at the moment. Well, we're coming towards the end of our time. But just before we finish, one final question. So we have uh, policymakers from the UK uh, listening to this this podcast. Um, if there's one core message that you want to get across to those policymakers, what would it be? It's a little bit of a cop-out, but rather than give a specific policy suggestion, I think what I've said and what I asked this before is just to be brave and to actually think about as a politician, as a sitting policymaker, what decisions can you make that will actually improve the livelihoods of your people? And I think the example I gave in the book was one of, there were more than a few of these congressmen, the U.S. congressmen, congresswomen in 2010, uh, Tom Perriello being one of them, who voted for Obamacare despite knowing that vote would lose them their seats. And I think that was incredibly brave and clearly was worth one seat. Losing your seat to extend healthcare to millions of Americans, even if Obamacare was not perfect, but he just setting that precedent 
was so clearly worth the cost. And I think there are far too po- far too few politicians that would be willing to make that trade-off. So that would be my my one bit of advice would to stand up and be brave and vote for things that even maybe seem a little bit unpopular at the moment, but clearly will have a benefit for the people you're supposed to be serving. A very fine note to end on. Thank you so much, Charles. Really interesting conversation and great book as well. So we have been talking about Defeating the Dictators, How Democracy Can Prevail in the Age of the Strongman by Charles Dunst, published in February by Hodder and Stoughton. It's available in all good bookshops and it's a fascinating and very thought-provoking read. I really do recommend it. Next week, we're looking at the implications of increasingly sophisticated military technology. Remember to make sure you don't miss out on that or other future episodes of UCL Uncovering Politics. All you need to do is subscribe. You can do so on Apple, Google Podcasts, or whatever podcast provider you use. And while you're there, we'd love it if you could take a moment of time to rate or review us too. I'm Alan Rennick. This episode was produced by Alice Hart and Eleanor Kingwell-Bannum. Our theme music is written and performed by John Mann. This has been UCL Uncovering Politics. Thank you for listening. Mm